Oh, hello, Wednesday. Folks, where did the summer go, honestly? Regardless, we're about to get you fueled for the rest of your week with this week's incredible guest, Samara Bay. In Hollywood, Samara is a speech and dialect coach for actors like Gal Gadot in Wonder Woman, Penelope Cruz and Edgar Ramirez in American Crime Story, Versace, and a new personal favorite, Rachel McAdams in Eurovision. Did you see the movie? It's great. Samara is also the host and producer of Permission to Speak, a new podcast on iHeartRadio that explores how we communicate in the moments that matter and what our voices say about us. I can't think of a more important concept to talk through when it comes to the nuances of social impact. Without further ado, welcome Samara Bay. How does the activist land the corporate dollars to make change? How does the child leave a movement? Hello, Greta, anyone. And how did the millennial convince the boomer? What do these situations have in common? They had make or break moments where influence was created and light bulbs went off. I'm Rebecca Nedelik, and this is Nuance of Impact, a podcast to get lost in the stories of those making change. Together, we'll chat, learn, and ponder the nuanced make or break moments that make social impact so impactful. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. Are you I recording was... already? Oh my God, hello. Um, All right, right off the bat, I got to ask. Do you, do you identify title-wise as a dialect coach? It's such a great question. I mean, truly, I'm, I'm uh, straddling many divides right now. Um, so I would say dialect coach and maybe end speech coach. So what does a dialect coach mean? Because when I first read the bio, I was like, wait a minute, what is this? Yeah. I mean, the hilarity is that dialect coach A is not what I like wanted to do when I was little and B, it's not what anybody wants to do when they're little because it's like a complete behind the scenes job that no one even thinks of as existing. But we all probably can point to an actor that we love who does an amazing accent in some project and you're like, wait, how did that like come out of their mouth? Um, and the answer is, dun, 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 dun. you know, um, there are not that many of us, like less than 20 in the whole country that do TV film stuff. And um, most of us had wiggly careers to get here because it's not, there's not a certification. There's no, like, it requires a bizarre and, you know, of course, I think fantastic because it fits me well skill set, which is um, one, I think coming up through acting is really helpful because I really deeply understand the actor's process. And I understand that um, putting a new, new sounds into their mouth is not just as easy as like post-it note, post-it note, goodbye. There's something really deeply like human about the process mm -hmm. of trying to sound like somebody else and still, you know, and still function. Uh, and so there's the acting side of it and there's the understanding text and how like the sounds and the musicality of whatever accent they're working on also has to sort of match the, the meaning of the thoughts uh, written by usually someone else. Um, and then there's also just like the totally kind of nerdy sciencey side of it, which is the international phonetic alphabet. It is this, the, the, the minute breakdown of vowels and consonants and musicality and tension, I mean, uh, intonation. And I'm like, you just spoke a different language to me just now. Like I didn't even phonetic, li phonetic alphabet? Completely. So there's this thing 
called the International Phonetic Alphabet, which everybody actually has more exposure to than they think. It's just that that term feels very dramatic. But if you've ever looked anything up in a dictionary and you've seen any symbol, like maybe a little lowercase e that's upside mm -hmm. down and been like, well, that looks like Greek. Um, it's really helpful. I mean, for those of us who've like done the, you know, sort of annoying grunt work up top, just, I really say it's like learning music. It's like no mm -hmm. one, no one wants to do music theory in order to learn how to, you know, play their instrument. But like, once you get through that, then you can play your instrument, then like music happens. Mm -hmm. So similarly with the International Phonetic Alphabet, a lot of actors who come up through like a conservatory training program that gives you a, a taste of a bunch of different, um, I don't know, modes of, of acting from Shakespeare to modern to uh, like getting to do some yoga and kind of connect to our bodies. And you have a voice class where you're doing a lot of like ha-ha breath work. Um, often there is an element of a quote unquote speech class too, which is learning dialects or learning how to learn dialects. And you do get exposure to the international phonetic alphabet. And most actors, because they're actors, uh, are like, this looks like math. No, thanks. And then I feel like every once in a while, there's that actor who's like, wait, but it's actually a secret code. Guys, wait, 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 wait. And I got so excited. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an English major too. I'm, I was already kind of a slightly unusual actor because of the way I came up and was very sort of heady. So you started your career wanting to be an actor. Totally. I was like, at age 10, I was like, I, I, this is what I, my plan is, and I shall do everything right to get there. And, uh, but even then, it wasn't go to Hollywood and be on a sitcom. It was do regional Shakespeare and make no money and have a nomadic existence. And I very much romanticized it. But, you know, that was, that was totally me. Mm. Now, you've worked with incredible actors. Like, who, who would you say is your favorite so far? I mean, one of my recent, I have two that come to mind. One of my recent um, gems of a human who I got to work with was Rachel McAdams. Uh, dude, just a delight. I got to coach her in the Icelandic accent for Eurovision, the Netflix movie that came out during the pandemic. So everybody actually saw it. Us Canadians love Rachel McAdams. Oh my God, Canada, of course. That's why she's so great. It, you know what it really is, right? <laughs> it, really, it really is. She's like a Canadian ambassador. Um, anyway, uh, I adore her. I adore her. But she and Will Ferrell play, and um, Pierce Brosnan play, you know, Icelandic people from this tiny little town. And I coached both Pierce and her. And it was like months of pouring over Bjork and then saying funny lines that Will Ferrell had written and trying to sound like a person. And, you know, we also like would continually get distracted. And, and I feel like we, we had like a delightful banter that resulted in us continually being like, but we should get back to work. Um, it's a great example of the, the actual work. Like A, we had a sample of a native speaker and B, it's a lot of like kind of create a safe space. And by safe, I mean like, like truly able to make mistakes and feel silly and feel, you know, all the things that you feel before you feel good at something. There is something sort of like large and kind of um, philosophically satisfying about that. And then ultimately they shot it all over Europe and I was remote. So I had sort of done my work by that point and she was kind of on her own. But then whenever there was a scene that she was doing with somebody else with a different accent from a different part of the world, uh, she would be like, uh, can we do a little, <laughs> little catch back up? And we would do an hour over, you know, Skype. 
and just sort of like practice the lines, find the rhythm of what funny or what I care sounds like in a different accent actually come out of our own minds. What would you say is, um, is like the most fulfilling part about supporting somebody as a dialect coach? Honestly, it's, it's two things. One, it's that it's really feeling like I'm actually supporting them. Like I am, I, I, I don't know whether to put it in past tense or future tense, but I am, was, will be on a TV show um, that, that shut down for the pandemic, but is actually starting up again next week for just one week to finish it up. And I got to coach these two actors who, um, it's a really dark show. It's really psychologically draining. It's really racially charged. It's really insanely smart and meaningful and like sophisticated. And it's going to come out on Amazon. Uh, but, um, but to be able to actually meet up with them every morning and not just do their sounds with them and do their lines for the day, but also like literally give them the space to be people processing what this is when the rest of the set is sort of just like, stand here, go here, do this. You know, we don't have time, time is money. I'm the person who gets to show up and be like, time isn't money. Like we're, we just have a little bit of like carved out space to connect back with like the creative process. And I mean, that's a dream. And then the other part of it that, that's connected is like getting to work on projects like that. Like I have definitely worked on things that are not as, you know, fulfilling and as a dialect coach, rather than as, you know, an above the line talent, like the producer or the actor, I don't always get to choose. I mean, I can say no, but it's, you know, a job is a job. Mm-hmm. But lucking out, getting to work on things that feel like they're actually, you know, making an impact, you know, providing value to the world, changing what Hollywood sounds like or changing what the stories are that people are, you know, hearing. Mm. It's like dreamy. And so, I mean, in that, like, what would you say as these, you know, actors or, you know, you've also worked with politicians when they're taking on the spoken word, What's the power in being able to do it properly or to do it right? It's a really loaded question because I don't, I don't really feel like right and proper are the name of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I, I will say that dialect coaching, which I've done for the last like 15 years or so, um, I've always on the side been interested in what is this work seen a little bit sideways what is this work when it comes to helping scientists tell their story better so they can actually get funding or actually inspire their students because there's sort of a stereotype that scientists are, you know, a bit cut off from their body, their head and their body are sort of like disconnected and they're like, they've been trained out of, out of having an emotional connection to something because that actually seems in their, in their training to suggest that they're uh, lacking credibility. But of Mm. course we know that like people who tell good stories, we trust better that we we go along for the ride emotions are not a bad thing like the, you know the sort of heart forward version of their industry and then there's the heart forward version of every industry and i started volunteering um after the 2016 election in the us of a don't know if anybody here has followed. we've never heard of it actually no. <laughs> um you know obviously everybody uh, no i shouldn't say obviously but certainly many people in my circles in california Um, got involved instantly in activism in some way, partly Mm -hmm. just to stave off, you know, despair. And some of that for me entailed like 
just really classic like postcard writing like the stuff that 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 you know activism groups are doing just to feel like you know we're we're, we're part of the 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 movement we're literally yeah. moving things forward um but some of it was i thought you know where does my skill set overlap with what's needed right now mm. and there's a stunning venn diagram that's just like two circles and one of them says um what breaks your heart about the world and the other one says, what are your skills? And that little overlap, right? And I was thinking, you know, so much of what comes up when I'm working with actors is not actually about vowels and consonants. It's about what it is to do something, anything a little unusual, in their case, maybe an accent, but maybe even just the act of acting, saying someone else's words. When we do something unusual with our bodies, sometimes, I'll say, just to like make the metaphor really clear, it's public speaking, right? When we're mm -hmm. doing anything that takes us out of our comfort zone, suddenly all the baggage that we have picked up our whole lives living in a, you know, patriarchal, white supremacist, capitalist society uh, comes kind of a little bit more front and center. It's been mm. there all along, but it comes a little more front and center. And we start to notice if, say, we're public speaking and we're not used to it, that the shape that people looking at us takes on is I don't feel like I belong in this space. I don't feel like I um, can take up space. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't, I, I should probably apologize for existing in some capacity. And that comes out in our voices. Mm -hmm. And that I've always been intrigued by. And I can't, every time I've worked with an actor, it comes up, but every time I work with a not actor, a not actor and any other industry person, uh, it comes up too, even when I'm working with straight white men, I have to say. But no matter what, if you've come to me to do some sort of speech coaching, it's probably because you're aware that something is not feeling great yet in terms of how we show up, how we present, what it is to show up in a space, but actually also show up. You know, to really mm -hmm. hear ourselves talk and then sound like ourselves and be like, oh, I know her. Mm. So my job became like so much more like I am also dialect coaching and I started working with women who are running for office for the first time through moveon.org, which is this amazing organization that kind of finds people who have great like down ballot campaigns and kind of lifts them up a bit by giving them resources like me. And then, you know, I was working with entrepreneurs who were friends of mine or friends of friends who were pitching their product to target and realized like, I'm really good at making the product, but that's not the same thing as being good at telling the story of me as the person who made the product and then also what the product does and who it's for and mm -hmm. how to embody the experience of explaining this. And word kind of spread and I, um, I just started doing this the last few years and it really got me feeling like um, to sort of stand at this intersection of how we use our literal voices, but also what all of the, um, structured structures of power are that sort of come mm -hmm. out in the answer to how we use our voices is not really a, a it's that standing at that intersection there's like not a lot of other people here mm -hmm. I gotta ask like what's a what's an example of that because I actually when and of course we we always chat before um, we do these episodes and that's something that I just put like eight stars around when we were going through our conversation on you know, voice is power. And, you know, I should probably like, 
you're, I think I agree completely. It's not, you know, properly or the right way of saying things, but it's like the most effective way of saying things Mm -hmm. and saying things effectively. Like for you, when you're thinking about the power that can um, be cultivated through voice and through the way that you say something, like, what is that? What are, what is, has there ever been a moment for you where you're like, and that's it. And that was powerful. (laughs) Where it was before, you know, this is leaps and bounds. You know, my um, podcast and the book I'm writing are called Permission to Speak. And I think there's something so, so valuable in this idea of permission because we can talk and I do, and I'm happy to sort of be in the, um, in the middle of these really like sort of celebrating and lamenting the complexity of the answer to your question. Um, but we can be in the middle of that, that thought of like, should I use vocal fry or is everybody telling me that that means that I will no longer be taken seriously? What, like, you know, what is it to have sort of a marker of, of sounding gendered and sounding like a female? What is it not to, you know, we can absolutely talk about all of the specifics of that, but the answer will inevitably be that it's different for different people, that context matters, that who we show up as is matter who we show up as matters and what we want to show up as matters, what our intentions are, et cetera. I actually use this phrase all the time, how to use your voice to get what you want, because I don't actually think there's one way to use our voice like ever, even for any individual, not only like culturally for a whole swath of anybody who's ever felt you know, marginalized, but for any individual, we have so many options at our disposal. What I want is for us to actually think, well, what do I want in this scenario? Is my goal to be heard by this old guard, you know, room full of whatever, God bless, you know, straight, white, rich men who like hold the keys to whatever kingdom I'm trying to get into. How, what concessions am I willing to make on what makes Mm -hmm. me feel like me in order to get what I want in that space until I have more power Mm -hmm. and can make fewer concessions? You know, I I just feel like that's an an honest conversation we can have with ourselves. Mm -hmm. But the other side of it is this permission thing. Because sometimes staying only in that conversation, only in the how do we get what we want conversation, we forget that sometimes we can teach those old guard straight white men what power sounds like. We have to just be willing to be a little bit more ourselves than we were in that scary space yesterday or than we were, you know, the last time. And what does it mean to sound like more ourselves? We don't know until we give ourselves permission. Until we like, mm. think, well, God, what is that version of me that I, that I recognize myself in? That I love. Who am I like with my favorite people? How do I tell a story about a time that something either amazing happened or something super crappy happened? How do I tell those stories when I have a real uh, phrase from, from the theater world, urge to communicate, when I have a real one, not a sort of like, oh God, I guess I have to do this presentation and I don't even care about this subject, but a real one. Like start to notice ourselves. What is that version of me? And does she feel more, or he, does, does, does this version of me feel more, um, like a bigger gamble to take, but maybe a gamble that will pay off. And the answer is not always yes. You know, I mean, truly, I really, this is what I mean about living in the gray area. Like we really have to be honest about what spaces can handle us, but being honest about it means that we should not be reverting back every time to the space can't. 
and also it you know it's really about like making a decision about what space we do want to be in and saying you know what this isn't the space I want to be in like this that's this right. space can't handle me that's right that's right and that's like I mean you know there's certainly I don't want to um, be an apologist for spaces that are crappy and basically saying like we don't always have the privilege of choosing what space we want to be in exactly Period. Actually, on a previous episode, I was talking with um, Afdel Aziz, who's an author working in the uh, corporate purpose space. And something that he said is um, in workplaces that black and brown folks are often doing two jobs, their job descriptions, and then coaching and teaching and educating on what it what the experience is like to be a person of color within their organization and how you're playing that gray area and you're making conscious decisions all the time. And I call it raising the penalty flag. Like when do you raise the penalty flag? And my experience as a woman of color is I'm constantly sitting there being like, is this the right time? Is this going to be effective? Am I putting, you know, my financial well-being, my career well-being, am I putting that at risk by making the statement? And am I, is the impact great enough that it's worth it? And I've seen it. I've sat at, you know, I sat at the boardroom table and you see somebody speak up passionately and, you know, immediately get diminished to emotional. And it's terrifying. A, I want to really validate. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. And I think that there's also this interesting sort of middle way where we can sometimes get a little... <laughs> black and white about do I or don't oh. I speak up, right? But there is this middle way of who are my allies in this space? What are ways that I can speak up that will be heard? And it's kind of infuriating because it's like extra emotional labor on top of the emotional labor you're already talking about. Um, but what we all want or what I want, I should say, is for leadership, for those those rooms of power to have more diversity in them. So the answer isn't just shut up or leave, right? There is this other thing, which is we speak up and then how do we speak up in a way where like we continue down the path of becoming the leaders so that that space doesn't require more penalty, penalty flags in the future or where yeah. penalty flags are just obvious. And I, I mean, I think the goal is always you want to speak up and you want to be respected for speaking up, right? You're, it's the fear that you spoke up and now you're a shit disturber or you're causing issues versus you spoke up and you said something meaningful and impactful and people, people listen. Like, I mean, there is, this, there is this thing that like a lot of people know intellectually, which is that more diverse ecosystems help everybody. And the growing pains to get there makes people feel fragile. Mm -hmm. mm. Let's talk about that. But that's the, that's the whole thing. And so how do we handle like the fragility on the way up, but still eyes on the prize that like, it's going to serve everybody. I mean, you know, I partly to stop getting to stop being so abstract, like an example is um, women are told that they're emotional or angry uh, when they, you know, say things that matter to them, but less so, and studies show this as well as anecdotal evidence, probably from our own lives, that if we make it about the greater good, if we make it about, um, I'm speaking on behalf of, we are able to be heard better quotes around heard. <laughs> so, you know, I always like to think for my own life, as well as for my clients, for my friends, if we're feeling pissed off about something, 
uh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be a big old feminist and say it's probably valid, right? I'm just gonna that A, and then B, um, can we sit with it for a bit and peel back a layer and figure out how that thing we're angry about is actually probably about an injustice that's larger than us? Mm -hmm. Because taking that step gives us permission. Then it's not like, oh God, oh God, I'm going to say this thing that I'm, I'm mad about, I'm mad about, but we're going to say kind of like that um, amazing AOC speech from a few weeks ago. Yes. Uh, right. She made, she put in so much mental labor up top to say, this is not about me. I'm not feeling hurt. I, it's not that my feelings need to be coddled. It's that what this guy said to me is revealing of a larger cultural trend. And I'd like to speak up with the platform I have on behalf of all those other people for whom uh, it has also happened. Mm -hmm. And that's where the power came from. It did not come from saying I felt hurt. It's yeah. a bummer because she probably did. And, and, you know, I would like to live in a future where you can also say, by the way, I'm personally hurt by it and it made me feel bad. But, you know, if we're playing this game of how to use your voice to get what you want, one way to do it is to say, that's true, but it's not going to help me get what I want. Mm. What I'm going to do is think about who else can I help mm. by speaking up. Mm. What kind of mindset do you think that requires? Like as, and as a coach, when you're, you know, coaching politicians or people that are um, activists, like people who are doing work that, and telling stories that need to be told, I mean, you're doing more, you're doing more than coaching on dialect and speech. You're coaching mentality. Like there's a little bit of therapist in there. This is the thing. I mean, you know, therapists know, and I try to like figure out what that line is very, you know, very aggressively um, because I don't actually, I, this sounds worse than it is, but I don't actually care why, you know, like what the history is of the person that got to the point where they're feeling marginalized in this way. God bless that you can do that in therapy. What I want is what do we do in the moment? Well, I'm like super fucking practical. I'm sorry. I just swore on your, on your podcast. I'm quite practical. <laughs> and, um, and I want to know the answer to what you ask. And usually the answer is, you know, this is why I talk about permission to speak. The permission part matters maybe as much as if not more than the speaking part. Right. But and mm -hmm. how we use our voice, how the literal sound of our voice comes out has so much to do with mindset mindset. Then it's so much more to do with mindset than it does with like, I don't know, doing a vocal warm up. I'm into both. Right. Um, but the, the answer to the question, what does it take to get from that first version to the version where we, where we make it about the, 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 the whole the larger, the, the, you know, sort of tap into the, the collective power um, of our anger rather than the individual power. Here's my kind of, um, I don't know. I was going to say surprise answer, but you tell me if it's a surprise. Um, I think it's really helpful to think of it as just toggling a switch. Hmm we absolutely can journal and do work and talk to our friends and think about who our allies are and think about who we are speaking on behalf of. But I have found in a one hour coaching session with somebody who has to just give a speech on a subject or something like that, a pitch or whatever, that often, this is why permission is so, it's so good. It's really just somebody saying, if you're feeling mad, um, it's probably about a bigger injustice than just you. Trust that. Mm. and delivering that message and the reason I think this is so important is I mean when we're talking about like the nuances of social impact and those make or break moments often it comes down to a single conversation 
it comes down to an opportunity coming into place at the right time and somebody being able to capitalize on that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And for people who are pursuing social justice work or whether it's social purpose for a corporation or activism and getting up in front of, you know, a protest of people, you're really trying to channel that anger, that frustration, that passion into doing something impactful and resonating with people, getting on their level. And making it about them. You know, I mean, so much of it's one of the like central tenets of the work that I do is that often when we get super, super self-conscious, there is a shift that we can make. I mean, it's not, I, I wish it were as easy as the toggle, but I think that the toggle idea is helpful because it gets us out of the space of like six months from now, I'll be able to, do, you know, like I dare you, I dare you like my five-year-old to just switch gears, to just change, like use your imagination to imagine the other version. And mm -hmm. so the other version of getting really self-conscious when you're in front of people is to think, the, to, to reinvest in the why. Why am I here? What am I here for, for you? What makes me excited about helping you? Mm -hmm. And that is the work we can do ahead of time if we're, if we're actually just doing like real prep work on the material mm -hmm. and the content. But it's, it's not just the content. I mean, what we're talking about is it's not just what you say, it's how you say it, right? And the how you say it, the, the tone, the body language, the feeling of what I always want people to feel is, is freedom and joy, regardless of the content, you know? How do we get to freedom and joy? Well, you know, we have to invest in like what we're doing up there for whom mm -hmm. and stop mm -hmm. thinking, you know, why am I the person? Who am I? You know, who am I? Why am I? I, I love it. I get That's it. We're like, it it's like imposter syndrome. Yay. We all have it. We're all, you know, we're all human, but like put it in a little box. I had, a, I had an old coach I love um, named Carmina who said, um, oh, that's your troll. She's in your head. He's in your head and give it a hug and say, thank you. I know you're trying to protect me. I'm on to bigger things. Aww. So good, right? So I'm not going to lie. I love positive self-affirmation. It's real. Like I had a, I was in a, a quadding accident um, a couple years ago. I rolled a, a quad, like a four by four. Is that, a, is, that a, is that a Canadian term for something I Maybe. don't know? You know, it, okay, like four wheels. No, it's like a vehicle. Like you're on okay. top of it, you're driving it and it has four big wheels and like, yeah. Anyway, it's Amazing. like it's an ATV. Yeah. They're dangerous. I wasn't wearing a helmet. I was being very silly. I rolled this quad down like a 10 foot cliff, short cliff anyway, and was lucky enough that I only broke my arm. The funny thing is when I came off that accident, I, um, I had for about two years, had an incredible fear of anything with a drop on the right-hand side. Yeah. And I was coming down and where I noticed it most was um, skiing. I used to love snowboarding and um, I went skiing and I started going down the hill and saying, you can do this. You're a badass. like this, you own this hill. And it really changed the mindset of feeling, you know, two inches tall versus feeling capable and, you know, in my own power, as silly as that sounds as I'm on two skis on a huge mountain with thousands of other people, but it really does. It really does help. And I wonder how that sort of plays out when Completely. you're talking about speaking. It feel, I mean, my, the, the advice I always give people of, of really, um, thinking about breathing into that feeling of being around your favorite people, that version of yourself that isn't just comfortable, but also kind of on, like energized, um, like loved, um, 
it is a way of saying so many other things. It's a way of saying, what is the alter ego inside of you? A la, you know, Sasha Fierce for Beyonce. Um, it's um, a, Jessica Pearson from Suits. Hello. Yes. I, I feel like I watched the pilot of Suits. I don't know. I don't know. But yes, that's great. Is she your, so, your alter ego? Oh, she's my alter ego. Like, oh, delightful. Like, I, she is my, Jessica Pearson from Suits. I'm like, that woman is just so grounded in her power. I'm Listening to music does this for us. I, I have my, um, my, my favorite mug here that says, um, when in doubt, dance it out. Just remembering, I mean, I said earlier the thing about the five-year-old within, you know, just remembering that we have so much more access to um, our imagination, to different versions of ourselves, to the sort of... Um, I don't know, shape-shifting, mm. uh, linguists would call it code switching. You know, we've got, we've got different versions of ourselves. Sometimes it's that one feels more authentic and one feels less, but sometimes it's not. It's just not that black and white. Like, we don't talk to different people in our lives the same way. And I love to invest in that version that feels so free and so joyful in those urge to communicate moments that it is a little bit like what am I like when I'm drunk? What am I like when I'm, when I'm an alter ego? What am I, you know, a, a friend says, um, my act as if me, like the version of me that just knows how to do all the things. This is all, yeah, there's so much mindset stuff about this, but really whichever one of those works for you, it, what I, what makes me kind of an infuriating and ridiculous and also fantastic voice coach is that it is about the voice, but it's also not because when we're feeling free and when we're feeling joyful, it solves 90% of our vocal issues. I don't yeah. want to actually talk to somebody about vocal fry. I want to talk to about what it, talk to them about what it feels like to not apologize for taking up time and space, which by the way, solves their vocal fry because they breathe. Wow. That's crazy. But I believe you. I mean, it's like, you know, there's a little like no. jiggering we can do with every person, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, I love doing hour long sessions, which I have not been able to do because of the pandemic. I mean, I, a little bit of a remote, but I love when, um, I don't really know what they're going to be bringing me, but together mm. we like alchemize something real. When I chatted with you last week, earlier this week, whenever it was, um, time. what is time during COVID? Honestly, <laughs> I was very, very aware that you may be speech coach, dialect coach, but you are also a proud feminist. You are also doing incredible social justice work. I, for me, from just speaking with you, it sounds like the podcast for you is, is an outlet to further that impact and further that message. For you, what's the connection between um, dialect coaching and activism? Um, I think that, here's what I'll say. There's this cool idea in linguistics of an idiolect, fancy word for literally every one of us sounds different from every other one of us. That's all mm. it means. Why does each of us sound different from every other person on earth? Well, because our life experience is reflected in our voice. So not only where we grew up, what accent we heard when we were little, uh, but also what we've done since then, the choices we have made to leave home, to date that person, to go to that school, to get by in that room, has influenced us in obviously sometimes in conscious ways, but largely in unconscious ways. And so I think as much as it, it has seemed like a kind of a surprising leap to go from dialect coaching to coaching non-actors, um, I realized that Part of what I was doing with 
accent work with actors and with non-actors, actually accent work I've done with, with business people as well, is like trying to um, put a different idiolect into their mouth. Like what is it to sound like somebody who had a different life experience up to this point? Hmm. And in Hollywood, we do that to tell stories. In the real world, we do that to get power. Shit, you're right. Right? And like, I just feel so, I feel sort of um, this beautiful, like fiery mission inside of me to talk about this stuff because it's actually relevant for like all of us. But because the voice is invisible, it doesn't get the same sort of discussion as what we wear, how we choose to come across in the world with, with how we look, um, and what we do, the choices we don't have as well, by the way. Um, it's invisible, and there's no like voice industrial complex compared to the like beauty industrial complex. Like we don't know the answer to this, this sort of idea of like what the right way is to sound or the right way is to um, you know, to, to speak whatever language we're speaking. There's a standard and that standard, there's a lot of delightful evidence to suggest standards in every language are just set by the richest, you know, probably lightest skin people in that room. Mm. And then the rest of us are like, okay, so the option is deviate from the standard and don't be taken seriously or, or learn the standard and don't feel like myself. There's gotta be mm. another way. And I, and the other part of it is that these little moments that many of us have had where it's either about vocal fry and upspeak because those are just these obvious kind of like women markers of, of feminine discourse stuff, which have really cool reasons why they exist. But, you know, they, that's not what people are thinking of when they're pointing them out to us. Um, it's either that or, you know, I have a friend who was um, told uh, when she was in like second grade by a little boy who she was in school with that uh, her voice was too high. And she was probably doing it, quote unquote, for the boys. Wow. And she didn't remember this until she heard my podcast and she burst into tears and was like, I think that's been kind of latently like hanging out in the back of my mind since I was mm -hmm. in second grade. And I didn't know how to process it then. <laughs> I don't know how to process it now. So part of it is, is that we each have little bits of sort of vocal drama um, that we don't know how to process because there isn't this sort of... Um, you know, sort of culturally approved upon way of talking about the voice. And then part of it is this thing about women in leadership. And we all know that Hillary Clinton was called shrill. We all know mm -hmm. that, you know, these concepts of likability are thrown at, at women who are in power or vying for power. And I kind of wanted to say, I think those are two parts of the same conversation. Mm -hmm. And let's like make the invisible visible. Like, can I throw some ink at this thing? Mm, interesting. Um, can we talk about your book? Sure. I mean, I'm in the middle of writing it. So it's very like trying to write during a pandemic. I mean, <laughs> what are you writing about? So I pitched this, I basically, I pitched up this podcast idea, um, my podcast permission to speak, uh, which is now on iHeartRadio. Uh, but I pitched it uh, 2019, March of 2019. And that same week, when I was already kind of in pitch mode on this idea that I'm really, I've been talking to you about. I mean, it's, it's all the same stuff. Um, it's evolved how I talk about it a little bit, but just sort of dancing in this space of voice and power and sort of seeing what happens um, and who else is like joining me in the dance, you know? Uh, I had already been kind of in that mindset and a friend randomly introduced me to a book agent 
Um, and I was not thinking about a book. I was thinking about this podcast. I was thinking about <laughs> literally dialect coaching. I mean, I was like, I'm like, I already have a bunch of jobs. Um, but he, he gave me the, uh, dare I say permission, gave me some simple assignments. I put it together. I started to get excited. I kind of wrote myself a manifesto and from there a real mm. proposal emerged. And, um, and it really is sort of a big idea book about all this stuff meets how to book that really is like every chapter is a small shift we can make that will make a big difference in how we feel about taking up space and about speaking up. Um, and, uh, and then at the beginning of the pandemic in this like insane twist of fate when I was like, I'll guess my New York trip to meet publishers is canceled and who cares about the voice when the world is falling apart. Um, it, it really turned out to be the opposite. There was a huge amount of interest and I, I was really um, validated. I was really blown away and was really like, there's clearly a need to articulate mm. this stuff. Mm. You know, I took it, it, it partly all started with a, a talk I gave um, almost two years ago now that I called how to use your voice to get what you want. That got this huge, like, I don't know, 500 times the amount of uh, people, 500% of the people that they expected to come came and, I thought, you know, um, I think people want the answer to that question. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think people recognize that there's, in those crucial moments, there is a way to say things that, that creates influence. And I think maybe it was in our conversation last week, we were talking about my big fat Greek wedding and that infamous line where the mom oh, yeah. says, my husband may be the head of the family, but I'm the neck and the neck controls the head. And we talked a little bit about are women used to being the neck and like yeah. it's kind yeah. of about time that we get comfortable being the head and i think it's you know we're in a position where we're often thinking about influence how do we influence how do we turn the head how do we turn the ship how do we turn a narrative and now we're saying okay like you know maybe i don't want to maybe i don't want to be convincing these five people to then use their voices to create change maybe i want to use my own voice yeah yeah, I mean, I, that, that, that quote came up and then I had just read um, Kate Mann, who is this brilliant uh, philosopher on misogyny, uh, who has a new book that just came out. I don't remember what it's called, so Google it, guys. Um, but uh, uh, she had this piece in the New York Times about um, the fact that having a vice president who's a woman, um, you know, great, yay, uh, progress, sort of. But like, don't pat ourselves on the back too much because a woman as the number two is not really smashing any patriarchal norms. Mm -hmm. um, if it was reversed, it would be a, you know, a, a huge sort of shift, paradigm shift. But, but this idea of women as the neck, you know, I, I referenced earlier that vocal fry and upspeak are, vocal, are, are, are markers of feminine speech. They are examples of ways that... Um, women through history have learned persuasive ways mm. to get power rather than just having the power. How do I persuade somebody? How do I come across as unintimidating? How do I make a sentence feel like a question so that they feel like the other person feels like they have the answer? We don't have. Are you just speaking into my brain right now? Because like, those are the things I think about on a day-to-day -day basis. I get it. <laughs> yeah. And also, by the way, shout out to, since I just referenced um, some people who are like super inspiring me right now, Amanda Montel, a book called Word Slut. Uh, she pulled together so much. It's called, the, the subtitle is a guide to taking, no, a feminist guide to taking back the English language. She interviewed so many linguists and put this together. And it really is so, um, 
it's really revealing to discover that a lot of the things women do, and also I'll throw into that um, interrupting each other and sort of this built conversational build is something linguists have actually studied. And they're like, yeah, that's actually a, not a man thing. Men, men add into a conversation to compete. Generalizations, guys, generalizations. But, you know, <clears throat> generally speaking, men will add in to compete. Women will add in to collaborate. We are building a thing together. Upspeak, upspeak, a little question marky at the end of your thought is a way of saying, but I don't know, what do you think? The floor is now yours anytime. Yeah. Right? By the way, and this is, this is just me, and this is stuff I'm just writing about right now, but I think that part of the issue with a lot of women public speaking and not quite feeling like themselves or not being respected, not being whatever, some of it is just societal shit that's out of our hands. But for the stuff that's in our hands, I think some of it is that we bring some of that conversational question marky stuff, uh, not really having any pauses because we are going to get interrupted at any second. And we bring that into the space where we suddenly do have the floor very formally that we're at a mm. lectern or we're on the stage or we, you know, have the metaphorical talking stick. And, mm -hmm. but we still don't give ourselves pauses because, oh my God, someone could interrupt. Or we still do up speak because we have to check in. Do you know what I mean? And some of that is where we can try out, like, what's the version of me that isn't in conversation, but that is actually holding the floor? When you think about um, your career, and I mean, you started trying to be an actor yeah. and made this switch and this, you know, impactful obsession with speech and how to speak and do it in the most impactful way, how to own your power. Do you ever think about legacy when it comes to your career? Yeah. Um, I think the word legacy feels really, now that you say it, no one's asked me this question, but uh, it, it has a bit of a masculine tinge to it. And I'm wondering if that's me adding that in, right? Because I'm also really interested in this concept of heroism. I think women are just terrible at thinking of themselves as the heroes of any story. Um, mm because of like this Joseph Campbell thing, like the woman stays home and helps, the man goes up and does the adventure and comes back. I mean, this is just like encoded in us. Uh, and we need to break, I know. So, um, so legacy is not a word that I've really thought about, but I do feel very much like I wanna be of use. And this is the, this is, you know, this is how. And I, I mm. feel like right when I was about to sort of embark on this, whatever there's more more a friend quoted uh hamilton it's not a moment it's a movement and i mm. thought you know i could use the reminder that when i'm talking to everybody else about how collective power is the secret that i i feel that way too and when i found a few other people who are playing this space actively being like wait are you dancing at the same intersection i am can we dance together um i mean i i want to change what power sounds like to start noticing moments like, you know, when Michelle Obama spoke yesterday at the Democratic National Convention or the AOC experience that I referenced or to start to notice them and think of them as data points. Hmm. Because otherwise we, I think we all do have this and it's different for each of us based on our industry too and what we sort of see right in front of us. But um, we have a little bit of a collective amnesia that happens when we start to think like, well, power sounds like, or the, per the person who gave this talk but knew what they were talking about would sound like. And then the fill in the blank at the end of those thoughts is like some, I don't know, JFK comes to mind. Like some, some like yeah. old school straight white man that like, fine. We're just never going to sound like that. We're setting ourselves up for totally. sabotage. 
But if we think like, what, what is so amazing about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? What is so amazing about Michelle Obama? Mm-hmm. they say things that are true and they sound like themselves while they do it. Yeah. They're not trying to sound like somebody else. So mm-hmm. when we are continually doing this, I should sound more like somebody who knows what they're doing. It's a way of saying I should sound less like myself and more like some generic thing, mm-hmm. more like some standard. And, you know, there is enough examples now of people who have broken out despite breaking the rules of trying to sound standard that we yeah. should notice that we should notice it and we should use it as fodder mm. so we stop mm. falling into these bad traps that aren't going to get us hurt mm. they're just going to get us by when you think so one of the inspirations for this podcast was 2018 29 2019 when greta started traveling around greta thunberg i mean this kid was like I can't, kept saying it for a long time. I was like, this kid's like 12, but no, this, she is like 16 <laughs> years old. And what I found so in Edmonton, where here, where I live, I remember walking out into the, uh, into the protest and looking around and realizing how much influence the voice of this girl had. And, you know, she's not trying to sound like anyone else. She is soft-spoken she is intentional with your expertise hat on or thinking about someone like Greta and also just observing female power in itself. Do you ever see sort of a common thread? Like I, I'm always baffled with, with Greta. I just think her message is incredible. It's important, but the amount of influence she's created is like nothing else. She's, she's that heroic figure, right? And she's 16. Yes. Um, (laughs) Another way of talking about feeling and connecting with our sense of joy when we have the chance to speak is talking about whether we're hiding or whether we're revealing. Mm. And there's so much literally vocally with our throats, with our, you know, pitch, um, that is what happens when we hide. And we hide out of fear. And it's like, real. I do it on my podcast when I'm talking to somebody who seems to not be getting me or some moment that feels scary. And what does it sound like to show up a little bit more, to peep out and say, this is what I really am. And when I use a little bit more pitch instead of, say, sounding monotone, I'm going to reveal that I care. Well, that makes me feel vulnerable. Well, ooh, okay, so that's a thing. And I think that the common thread to answer your question with Greta and with the other women that I just mentioned is that they have taken the opportunity to say, I will be vulnerable and show I care and find power in that. It's almost like we respond to authenticity, right? That's totally it. It's just that something that word gets so thrown around that we don't even know what that means exactly. (laughs) I mean, I'm literally defining authenticity as Uh, Talking about things that matter to us like they matter to us. Mm. Because it's easy to talk about shit that doesn't really matter, you know? Yeah. In fact, that's what a lot of social media is. I mean, we had this great conversation when we talked before. I mean, so much of social media, so much of like the people who are taking up space, I'm on the one hand like, go you, like the space is there, there's endless space. It's abundance. We don't need to live in like scarcity mentality. Take up your space. But if Um, you have like a persona online when you're talking about some, you know, trash TV that that you know everyone is going to agree with you on. 
and that version of you is super comfy, that's a good, that's a good like example of how to, then how do you bring that version of you to talking about something that's scarier? Mm-hmm. And it's not one-to-one, but there is something to learn from that other version of us so that we don't just clamp down and become, you know, absent when we talk, yeah. have to talk about the work that's closest to our heart. I wonder too, like even just, you know, when we started this conversation, we were talking about having an opinion um, and standing strong in your opinion versus just reiterating opinions of others mm-hmm. and, um, and why that's important. And I think that's sort of the, the question with social media is what role are you playing and what is the action that falls behind that? So it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to put action behind it to further that conversation in a meaningful way. And I think community for me is like something I've always, I think community is incredibly important when you were talking about being involved in the elections and, you know, writing the thank you cards or making the calls. Like there there's, it's one thing to post on social media about what you believe in. And it's another thing to be actively engaged in, in the movement as a whole. And I think that's sort of like the nuance part with social media. And what I love about sort of what you're doing and writing the book and, and permission to speak is you're making you're you're not just talking about it. You're making it very accessible to people. I I hope so. My God. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Of course. But it's also, there's an important role to play there because I think the more accessible it is, the more change that we're able to create. I do think it's something that's like my, my natural like persona. I mean, I'm on the younger end of the dialect coaches who do all this work and have always felt a little bit like kind of unstuffy about this stuff. I had somebody tweet me and say, um, this is the first time I've heard um, a conversation about the voice that doesn't talk about the diaphragm. And I'm like, right, like totally there are voice people you can go to or like probably YouTube videos where you can learn how to go haha and breathe more. And by the way, breath is like super important, like literally and metaphorically, if we're not supporting ourselves, who is, you know? Um, but there are people out there who focus on like breathe well and, and your breath will follow. And I'm like, that is one part of it. But like, why aren't we breathing well? Can we talk about that? Is it because we're bracing for impact? Mm-hmm. Well, okay, mm-hmm. let's talk about what the risk is, you know? <laughs> it sounds like if there was like one theme from our conversation, I feel like what I'm taking away from this is really that if there's an important message that you feel you need to speak up about, look at those emotions that fall behind it and connect it to that larger issue. To be able to say like, I'm actually not alone. This isn't, this isn't just my opinion. I know that. I just talked to a friend who's in a really like kind of uh, toxic work environment and had sort of convinced herself that that's what they all are. And, you know, there's some truth in that. Obviously there's like work culture drama in everybody's work. I mean, I, if there isn't any words like it, right, exactly. But there is a difference between like a toxic environment that makes you feel, you know, bad at the end of the day, you know, abused was the word that came to mind. That's really triggering. But you know what I mean? Like that, that feeling of, of really kind of being hollowed out. And then there's work cultures that, that don't. And I feel like part of having a community, part of knowing that there is a collective is to say there is something better for me. A beautiful reflection. And it fills me up to hear those reflections. So I love that. I, it's such an honor to speak with you. I, I love that we found each other through time and space. And, um, and I really, really appreciate what you're doing here. Thanks for being here, Samara. You can catch Samara Bay on her podcast, Permission to Speak, an iHeartRadio podcast anywhere you listen to your podcasts. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode of Nuance of Impact. 
Catch us on Instagram for weekly previews of who's joining us next. Happy Wednesday.